Psalm 131, a song of ascents of David. We have David, who is the uh, author of this psalm, and we know that this is, uh, as the, uh, the little subtitle there tells us, that this is a song of ascents. Now, we've discussed this before. We've covered a couple songs uh, of ascents, but essentially, uh, to remind you, this is a psalm that would have been sung by the people of God as they made their way to Jerusalem on their yearly pilgrimage. There were several feasts throughout the year that they would make, uh, and um, they would come to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. And so as they made their way, there is a, uh, a little block of, of psalms um, beginning, I think it's like in Psalm 120, it starts off. Uh, we get this, the different psalms that the, this group of pilgrims would be singing along their way. They would be uh, declaring these things as a corporate body, as a collective group. They would be uh, singing forth these verses, which would be in preparation for the celebration of these feasts. And so, as we come this morning, we consider Psalm 131, a song of ascents. And one of the purposes of these uh, psalms that they would be sung collectively was for the preparation of God's people for worship, for coming together with his people to celebrate the feasts. And so this would be uh, something that we would, that would be sung by God's people in order to prepare the heart, to prepare the mind. This would uh, be something that we would participate in as God's people to help orient our thoughts, our minds around Christ. Now for the group here that the psalmist is writing to, uh, they are on the uh, previous side of the cross. They are looking to this moment of hope. And all of their hope was bound up in the salvation of God's people and the covenant uh, that God would keep with his people. And this covenant, of course, handed down uh, to Abraham and then again reinforced at Mount Sinai. And then we find this covenant being lived out on a daily basis through the sacrificial system, through the temple. And as the people made their way, they are going to celebrate the feasts, but also to worship, looking to that day uh, where God's promised Savior will come, looking to that uh, time where they will be free from the rule of oppressing uh, countries, those who would be occupying them at different times throughout their history, free from their national enemies. And so, of course, they would be dealing with some of the hardships that they uh, speak of earlier in some of these songs about fearing enemies and looking to the Lord for deliverance. But now we come to a moment where David is speaking to his contentment with what God is doing in his life. He's speaking from 
experience. We get first uh, a glimpse of something that he struggled through, something that we all struggle through as people uh, who are uh, immature at some point in life. You know, we're all uh, children and we all have these desires and we want to pursue different things at some point, but then it comes to the point where you mature and you have an alternate perspective. And so David here is really expressing uh, these, these two different perspectives, both being someone who was immature in the past, who had a certain perspective, but now as one who has grown out of infancy, who has grown from a place of being a child that was dependent and is now moved into a place of uh, freedom and independence uh, from this past source. And so we come to the text and we read this. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. What David is doing in the opening verses of the psalm is this. He's speaking to his past experiences. He says, God, there was a time, there was a time in the past where I was lifted up in my own eyes. I was uh, raising my eyes up above others. I was walking with this pridefulness of heart. I was lifting my, my eyes and my nose so as to, to not have to look down upon common people, to not have to be around those who I believed to be lesser. Uh, David is, is making this confession that, that he is done with pridefulness. He's done with this arrogance. He's like, I've, I've not been this way. He recognizes that in the past he's been that way. But he says, I've learned. I've learned some things. That was my way but I've matured. My, my heart, it's not lifted up. I've not been arrogant or prideful. You see, because when we are prideful, when we are operating in pride, then our hearts are lifted up. We are believing ourselves to be superior to others, believing ourselves to, uh, to be not uh, really having to look down upon others, to deal with the hardships or struggles, to deal with even those who uh, might not even be struggling, but just don't appear in the same, uh, what we believe to be a, a, a class. When we think too highly of ourselves, or we seek to establish independence from others, we're really operating with that pridefulness, that, that heart that is lifted up. It's, it's you know, you, you see this played out, especially with, with children. And there'll be one child who's kind of playing, and another child comes over, and he kind of just looks at him like, you're not the same as me. You don't have the same skills. You don't entertain me. You don't belong here. And in, in a sense, a lot of times, 
at, at those younger ages, literally, they can lift themselves up and just move up one step on the playground that the younger child is not skilled enough to climb. Just be like, all right, well, I'm just going to climb up here because I know you can't get up here. I don't have to deal with you. There's nothing there that uh, would say that one child is better than another in that, in that sense, but yet there is this tendency to see oneself as most important, as the primary, uh, as the primary focus of all things. And this, this happens as a result of our sinful hearts. Because we are so focused on how we are feeling and how we are doing and what we want. There's a pridefulness of heart that happens. Now, at its very core, at its very core, pride is really an expression of independence from God. Not from others, but what you're really saying is the things that God has put in your life, the other people that God has put in your life, when you're seeking to distance yourself from, from those people, that independence that we so often pursue is really just a physical manifestation, a, a, an emotional manifestation of our desire for independence from the Lord. And when we press away from the Lord, when we act pridefully, what we're really doing is disobeying all that God has called us to. He's called us to act in humility and to associate with one another. He's called us to depend on one another. This is why the scriptures are filled with commands like, Love one another, bear one another's burdens, encourage one another while it is the day, build one another up in love, provoke one another to love and good works. Therefore, encourage one another all the more. Right? There's all of these commands that are built around one another. Even more so, the, the, the body of Christ is spoken as a corporate body, a collective body. And it is said specifically that each member of the body of Christ plays a specific role in the body and that each member depends on each other. And knowing our, our, little, our little sinful hearts, our little sinful hearts, the Holy Spirit just speaks to Paul to say this, he says, he says, I know you guys are also going to think, well, you know, there's some parts of the body that are, uh, they're, they're, they're hidden and they, they're not important because nobody sees them. He, he, he just comes right out and says, know what you're thinking. You might be a part of the body that's just kind of like, well, nobody really sees that. So it must not be important, right? Oh, you're like the, you're like the third, third left rib or something, right? But but what Paul then says instead is this, not that those, those uh, members who are unseen are unimportant. He doesn't acknowledge that. He doesn't agree with that. What he says is those members that are unseen are more important, that they do the job of holding up the body so that the parts of the body that are visible to others 
can accomplish their job. The structure, the the cells of the body, the the muscles and the ligaments and everything that's within, if if those vital components are not there, the external components of the body cannot do their job. Everyone depends on on one another. This is why he says, if one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. If one person is suffering, we all have to deal with it. You don't just say, well, you know, that's uh, that's, uh, somebody else's problem over there. It's one body. One injury. The whole body suffers. Isn't this how we deal with things medically? When you have an issue and you go to the doctors, what do they do? They ask you, okay, well, what are the symptoms that you have? What they're asking you is, what other portions of your body are suffering so we can diagnose where the real issue is? As we experience hardship and difficulty, as a member of the body suffers, there are other symptoms that begin to echo throughout the body. And we have to go chase down, like, okay, this is broken, this is hurting, this is messed up, this is bruised, this is injured, this is bleeding a little bit. And we've got to go and find out, okay, well, how are those all connected and where is the the source? What is the real issue? But too often... We want to act in independence. We don't want to tell anybody about our hurt or our hardship or our brokenness. But the body is depending on you. The body is depending on you to say, hey, I need help, I'm broken. So that way we can all rush to your aid. We can all rush to help. And I'll be very clear. The body is there to help. Not by being the healer, but by pointing to the healer. It's Jesus who's ultimately healing. And so when we go to help a member of the body, we're not going there to say, well, you know, I'm going to be your best friend. I'm going to be the one to fix it. I'm going to make you feel better. No, we're looking for healing, not just relief. Too often, what we want to do when there's a member of the body that's hurting, when there's hardship, there's difficulty, we want to provide relief but we don't give them healing. Healing only comes through Jesus. Relief comes when we want to make ourselves be the end. We want to be the one that helps someone feel better, and they say, oh, you're so great, you're so amazing, you're so, you're so awesome, thank you. And then you become to depend on that person who gives you relief and not on the healer. And so in turn, what happens is you end up broken, you stay broken, and you've built an idol instead of coming to a place of healing. As members of the body, we want to heal each other by pointing to Christ, not by providing relief. David learns to reject pride. He practices this, and he comes before the Lord in conscious humility. He knows that the way to approach the Lord on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to celebrate this feast, he must come in humility. He cannot come with pride. He cannot come with arrogance. He knows that he depends upon the Lord. 
that he relies upon the Lord. I think as we look through the life of David, we see that he has learned this lesson many times over. He experienced many hardships, many difficulties in his life. But the truth of God's work in his life was real to him. It's God who sustains him. Several places throughout the New Testament, but but one place specifically, we read this. James 4, 6. He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It's when we operate in humility that God is able to show grace to us. To give us what we need in those moments to provide for us. And so David says, I'm done with pride. Finished with it. That sin, I don't want to deal with it anymore. Now, a way that pride is often manifested is by this claim of knowledge. Oftentimes, we're prideful, and it's expressed when we say, well, you know, I don't really need help, or, you know, I'm good, because I really know what to do. I know the best way out. I know how things are going to work together. I know uh, how I'm going to, to be delivered from this circumstance or delivered from this situation. I'm going to know exactly what to do. We presume that we know the way. But David says, I'm not prideful. I'm not lifting up my, my heart. I'm not raising my eyes. He comes, and his second confession is he's done with presuming that he knows what's going on. He says this, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He's like, I don't need to be intellectual. I don't need to be wise. I don't need to know how this is happening. I don't need to know why this is happening. He just comes right out. It's like, I'm not prideful. I'm not lifted up in heart. I'm not lifting up my eyes. And I'm done trying to get all the answers, to know all the answers, to find all the answers to all the things. He says, I'm not going to pursue things that are, that are too great. Too marvelous for him. What he does there is he, he, he classifies that there is some knowledge, some revelation that can be known, and that there is some knowledge, some revelation that cannot be known. Some things are outside of his scope. Some things are outside of his understanding. Now, consider this as we, as we move through the rest of this text. David had an amazing relationship with the Lord. David had amazing experiences communing and fellowshipping with the Lord. David, the author of Psalms, the author of many portions of Scripture, the one to whom God gives a promise of a continuing heir. The Davidic kingdom would continue on. The one who has this 
title, being called one who is after God's heart. He comes and he's like, look, there's just two, some things that are too great and too marvelous for me. He's content with not pursuing and knowing everything about God, about his circumstances, about his situations. He's like, I'll, I'm just going to take what God gives me. If he gives me knowledge, great. If he doesn't give me knowledge, great. He's content to live in that spot. He doesn't pursue things that are too great. But he does pursue the Lord. He doesn't operate selfishly. He doesn't operate with this uh, presumption that he knows the most, knows all the things theologically. He just moves forward in humility. Now, if there's any time that this would have been a good message for people to hear is when you are headed to the Temple Mount to worship with all the other people who are God's people. Right? That's kind of how it is when you're like, oh, I'm headed off to like a, I'm headed off to like a conference, or I'm going, you know, I'm going to like a, a retreat, or I'm going to a time with other Christians, or maybe you're going back home, uh, you know, to, to your home church, and, and as you go home, you're kind of like, oh, I got to sharpen my chops a little bit, because when I get there, you know, people really need to know that like I know a whole bunch of stuff now, that I've grown a whole bunch, like I got to get to the Temple Mount, I got to be ready to be like, yo, what have you been reading? I've been reading this, like this is a crazy theological, uh, this is a crazy theological article, like, oh yeah, I, I subscribe to that theological journal, like, right, we try to like kind of like outdo one another like in this crazy knowledge, or like, oh, I've read this crazy book, oh, well, are you reading these authors? And I know how it is, because I came one from a really big church and I've attended a ton of conferences and everybody everybody's like trying to like outgun each other it's like oh well yeah I went this and did you hear this podcast and oh here's this right it's easy to do that it's easy for David who is the king to have this anticipation of all these people coming and he's like yo what am I going to say what am I going to say to blow these people away what am I going to say as my message to to impress them to show them, like, oh, the king, he's really been communing with the Lord. What am I going to bring? It's easy, it's easy to do that. It's like, i got to come up with my catchy slogan for this year's uh, event. As they come from the pilgrimage, you know, i got to come up with my, my thing I want to say, my hashtag that I want to be uh, used at this year's event. But what, what David does instead... He's just like, look, like, keeping it simple. There are things that are too great, too marvelous for me. David doesn't lack ambition. He just directs it to a godly place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, we read of Paul's similar direction. He says this, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He comes straight out and telling the Corinthians, like, look, like, I showed up. I didn't try to be fancy. I didn't come and try to convince you that, like, I'm awesome or, like, you know, I'm this amazing speaker and you guys need to have me back. He didn't come with any sort of you know, bells and whistles. He didn't come with a show to entertain. But he says this, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, memorize it. For I decided to know 
nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He's like, that's the only thing I want to talk about. I got, came there. I didn't come with lofty speech. I didn't come to co- convince you with all these uh, fancy words or wisdom. He's like, look, Jesus, that's it. That's all we're doing. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is why God loves to use regular people, because he doesn't want us trying to duplicate fancy speech. He doesn't want us trying to duplicate, you know, these different formulas and tactics. He wants us just to build each other up by just saying, like, how have you enjoyed Jesus? Let's read our Bibles, right? Simple. Prayer, read your Bible, be in fellowship. It's not more fancy than that. You don't have to come and know all this crazy stuff. Basics. The truth of the gospel. Paul tells us, it's the power of God unto salvation. Why would you deviate from the power of God when you were told exactly what the power is? Don't try to come with plausible wisdom and like this lofty speech. Come with the power of God every time. You know the powers in the gospel? Come with the power. You know the powers in the blood of Christ? Come with the power. Don't try to be focused on all these other things. Come with the power every time. It's not your crafty words. It's not your uh, convincing rhetoric. But it's the power of God. Notice Paul's determination. 1 Corinthians 2.2, in that verse, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's an important verse for us. Not just, to, not just that he's explaining the content, Jesus Christ and him crucified, but look at his focus, and we would do well to observe this focus. He says, look, when I come up into the church, here's what I want to know. He says, I've decided. In some translations, he says, I've determined. I've determined that here is what I am to deal with, to accomplish. His focus is singular. He's not saying like, hey, I'm going to come up into the church, and I want you to tell me about all your sweet apps. He doesn't care about that. I want you, he doesn't say, oh, you know, hey, let's, uh, it's good to see you guys. What are these, like, other, like, friendships you've been building and things you've been experiencing? What are your hobbies and, like, all this other stuff? He's like, look, let's just get to the chase. Tell me about Jesus. Tell me about what's happening. The focus is on Christ and him crucified. Now, trace, follow me, follow me here. He singularly cares about Christ and him crucified. That's all he wants to talk about. So if you want to talk about your pet, he doesn't care about that. If you want to talk about your favorite TV show, doesn't care about that. But 
That doesn't mean that he won't talk about that. What he's built, what he's, what he's asking, and what he's encouraging us to do, is to build our lives, to focus our lives centrally around the person and work of Jesus Christ, that we would find so much joy in Christ, that we would find so much uh, satisfaction in him, that Christ permeates every aspect of our life. And so if he's going to talk to you about your pet or your job or your friends, he wants to talk to you about how Christ has, how you're enjoying Jesus more faithfully through your pet, through your job, through your friends, how you're working to make Christ known to other people, how you're, to other people in your relationships, when you're going on vacation, how are you enjoying and ultimately resting in Christ through your vacation? Not going to say, oh, I'm going to feed myself, I'm going to give me what I want. Everything that you have that you want to enjoy, he doesn't say those are bad things, he says you have to enjoy them in the context of Christ. He's determined to know Christ and him crucified. So anything that you deal with falls under the sovereignty of God, he rules and reigns over all things, and so if we're going to have a conversation, if we're going to entertain other things that are not outrightly Jesus-specific, that are not a straight-up theological, you know, more, like, let's speak specifically about the Scriptures, we want to find how are you enjoying, how are you being more satisfied in Christ with whatever hobby, whatever pursuit, whatever uh, career you're working on. He doesn't say we can't deal with those things. Because as you go on through the book of 1 Corinthians, he says like, oh, you guys are working in this area, and here's marriage, and here's how Christ is good with that. He, he begins to, to lay on top of all, the, all these other areas and spheres of life, here's how Jesus applies. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. It's all over there. Right? And then you get towards the end, he, then he says, here's how the body works. Here's, here's the different gifts that are given to the body, so that way they can, you, you can serve with, within these different spheres of life. He tells you, here's how you can serve one another, how Christ can be magnified. He wants to focus here on pursuing Christ. And remember, he says, just regular things. You don't have to come with lofty speech that's convincing and like all this crazy stuff. Come in simplicity. Simplicity. David says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. All he's done really there is, is he's allowed himself to trust God. He's like, look, I don't, I don't need the answers to this. He's sovereign over all. I don't need to, to know all the answers. It's God who is the one who gives wisdom. David has these godly aspirations, pursuing Christ. Paul tells us that this determined focus on knowing Christ is a godly goal. But he says also in Philippians that there are selfish ambitions, things that we often pursue. In Philippians chapter 1, he says that there are those who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. 
that there are those who appear to be doing the right things for the wrong reasons. This is what David's getting at. He's like, I'm, not, I'm done with that. I'm trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry. In Philippians chapter 2, he goes on and he says that we ought to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. There it is. That humility again. The confession that there are things that are too great, too marvelous. He's like, look, I'm not pursuing those. Coming in humility. A lot of times we have good ambition. We'll call it good ambition. But what happens is it's not really the godly ambition that we need. It could be the right thing to do but not directed by God, it's, it's a wrong thing. It can even be turned into a sinful thing. And this, this really gets mixed up when we convince ourselves that we are doing things for God. Oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. But I would remind you that the Lord doesn't need you to do anything for him. <laughs> like, he doesn't, he doesn't need your help. He's not like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do if somebody doesn't handle that? How is that going to get done? How is it going to get accomplished? He doesn't need you to do anything for him. What the Lord wants is he wants you to do things with him. It's about time. It's about his presence. It's about spending time with him. Don't do things for him. Do things with him. Where he goes, you go. This really helps us focus. It helps us understand that we shouldn't come with the excuses that like, oh, I'm doing this for the Lord. Nobody cares if you're doing that for the Lord, if the Lord is not doing, if you're not doing it with him. If he's not doing it, why are you doing it? You only want to be a part of the things that he's a part of. Seek first his kingdom, not your kingdom. Charles Spurgeon, as he dealt with David's situation, and this tendency for us to want to do things for the Lord instead of doing things with the Lord, he says this. Too frequently, we exercise ourselves in great matters by having a high ambition to do something very wonderful in the church. This is why so very little is done. The great destroyer of good works is the ambition to do great works. A lot of talk. A lot of talk. 
We often want to do great works. We have this ambition for it, but we don't do it. We don't do it. God wants us to do things with him, not for him. So David says, there's great matters, things that are too, too profound. I'm not trying to do too much. I'm not trying to overwhelm myself. He recognizes that there are things that he's not going to understand. We read of this classification in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There's knowledge that is secret, that belongs to the Lord, that's not revealed. We know, we know what is happening, but we don't know why it's happening a lot of times. We, don't, we know what we're experiencing, we know, we know how we're experiencing something, but we don't know why. We don't know why we're going through this season, why we're experiencing hardship. We don't know why we're we're dealing with a difficult person at work or we're dealing with a, an injury or we're dealing with, uh, you know, some sort of suffering or oppression that comes from those who are, who are opposing your faith. There are all these sorts of things that we, we know what's happening and we might know how it's happening, but we, we just don't know why. And David just says, like, you just might not know. You just might not know. This is, this is like basically the entire book of Job. Like, wh why are all these crazy things happening? Right? You, you see what's happening. And you see how it's happening. And it's, it's not, you know, it kind of makes its way all the way through the end of the book where finally Job's like, what is going on? And then the Lord's like, yo, let me, let me talk to you for a bit. And then the Lord just says like, were you there when the world was made? Were you there when, like, I created all these crazy animals? Were you there when, when I broke forth the fountains of the... He just says all these things, and Job's like, eh, nope, sorry, 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 like I said all that stuff. And the Lord's like, I'm not done. I'm, I'm going to keep going. He just, he just keeps going. There's a plan. There's a way that God is working to accomplish his will, and you might not get the why. You might not get the why in other areas of life, too. You might not understand theological concepts fully. You might not understand when is the appropriate time to, to you know, pursue some things. You, 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 you might not understand the answers to some of your prayers. But the secret things belong to the Lord. This attitude of trust in the wisdom of God, his power, it brings peace to David. It brings this quietness to his soul. Look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Instead of pursuing knowledge, instead of pursuing greatness, instead of pursuing all these other things, David is determined to find satisfaction, to find joy, to find rest in who God is. 
If you feel like you are someone who constantly needs to be like on it, like I gotta like know more, I gotta pursue more, I gotta like pedal to the metal all the way, learn from David. His, he did that, but he ends with like, I just learned to rest. Learn to rest and take what God gives me. His lesson is abiding with the Lord, not trying to outknow, outdo everybody. David was called to a specific role, a specific task, and the Lord gave him exactly what he needed to fulfill that. No more, no less. He got what he needed. He's not trying to learn how to do everybody else's job. He learned his job, and he learned to rest. David says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. Of course, this is the Lord working within him as he learns to rest, as he learns to trust. And he uses this analogy, a description that shows this increasing maturity. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within, within me. He says there's a point where the child is eating, uh, you know, the child is breastfeeding, and then it comes to the point where uh, the child has been weaned off and the child is quiet. There's a time when you're so dependent, you're so like restless, and you haven't learned this spiritual truth, you haven't learned to be quieted, that you're just like constantly like frantic, just like a, a child would be, you, you know, who's hungry crying, like making all this ruckus all the time. Like, I need to eat. I'm hungry. I need attention. Give me something. Comfort. But then once that child is weaned, the child can still be in proximity, a close proximity to the mother. Can still be close. But not just be like, but, but be content with the presence of the mother. Not just be frantic and trying to pull all the time. And then as a result, the mother and the child are able to do more together than they would if the child was still uh, dependent, breastfeeding in that way. There's a lot of limitations that kind of come in that, in, in that period of time. But here, now the child can, is maturing, can grow more, can do more, can experience more. And the mother and the child can move together into a new season. David says, this is the lesson that I've learned. I've learned to be content. I've learned to enjoy the presence of God. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. David's like, I'm weaned off of my self-seeking, my self-sufficiency, my self-will. I'm weaned off of those stages in life where I'm trying to do everything that I want to do. He's learned the lesson of humility. No longer is he asking, what do I want to do today? How do I, what time do I want to wake up? What, do, what am I going to do? I mean, he's the king. He could do whatever he wanted. But instead, the lesson learned is, I'm now going to serve others. I'm going to give my life in service of others. And so he transitions from someone who is all about himself to now, as he looks to the next day, what can I do to be more prepared 
to serve others? What can I do to be more prepared to give and meet the needs of others? What can I do to consider others more important than myself? What can I do, as we were talking about earlier, as a member of the body, to contribute? I mean, I think David is probably pretty clearly an external member of the body uh, rather than an internal member. But whether internal or external, he's coming each day prepared to meet the need of that body. He's not dependent upon his own happiness. He's not dependent upon his own satisfaction, but he is being filled with the joy of Christ. Right? This is the telltale sign of a mature believer. If you want to know what it's like to move from a stage of infancy to a mature believer, a mature believer lives in such a way that they are orienting their lives around finding rest in Christ, joy in Christ, and in the service of the body of Christ. Those are some things that the mature believer does. Right? We don't mean in service of the body of Christ, just general things that everybody should do, that the Bible says, but is living sacrificially in the way that we find of Philippians chapter 2. How does Paul describe Christ's sacrifice? He says, he considered others more significant than himself. He considered others more significant than himself. And he put off what belonged to him, all of the rights that he would have enjoyed, all the things that he could have rightly deserved, all the things that were given to him by God. And, you know, nobody would have, if he would have kept them, nobody would have been like, oh, you don't deserve those things. He took those things, put them aside, came down to earth in the likeness of man, taking the form not of a president not a high ruler, not somebody with a lot of authority, taking the form of a servant and lived an obedient life for our sake. There was nothing that he did to kind of give himself a leg up. He said, who needs to, who, who needs to uh, receive something good? Mankind. I will come and I will make myself a servant of all. I'll put off all of the things that rightly belong to me, all the things that I deserve, all the things that I want. And instead, what does he do? He comes, he serves, he gives life every day. He gets up early, he communes with the Father in prayer, he goes out, he spends time in the scriptures, he prays with his disciples, he goes out and meets with the people and gives and gives and gives until he's dead tired and then he does it again the next day every day. Did he need to do that? No. But that is what it looks like to be a mature believer. To look around and see the need, to see ways that you could contribute, to be asking, Lord, how can I serve the body more faithfully? What can I give? What can I do so that God might be glorified, that the body might be strengthened? This is what David says. You've got to move from a place of being an immature believer 
to a place of maturity, where you're weaned, where you enjoy the presence of God, the nearness of him. He finishes here with his last phrase that is an exhortation to the collective nation. As they're all singing this, I mean, this would have been just so amazing to hear. They're all making their way to the Temple Mount as they're all making their way into Jerusalem. You hear this ring out, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The people of God can only learn this lesson, they can only learn this lesson if you set your hope on the Lord. You can only have a quieted soul if you hope in the Lord and nothing else. You've got to abandon all other things, all other plan Bs. You've got to, all of your, your back doors and ways that you're going to rescue yourself, you've got to get rid of them. You've got to be done. And you hope in the Lord. You're not going to experience the assurance. You're not going to experience the quietness of, of, of soul, the calmness, the peace and presence of God until you are dependent upon the presence of God. David is someone who has been weaned off of the pre- off of this uh, pursuit of knowledge, self-seeking. He's enjoying the presence of God. He's moved to be someone who is a mature believer. And what does he do? Very first thing, he thinks of others. He moves from someone who's being a weaned, uh, from someone who's being dependent to a weaned child, a quieted soul, and then immediately he's like, Israel, your turn now. He's no longer looking inwardly. They have got to learn this lesson. He calls for Israel to hope in the Lord forever. From this time forth and forevermore. That's an important part of that clause. Because a lot of times we'll be like, hope in the Lord. And we're just like, oh yeah, I can do that today. But what he's really saying is you've got to keep doing it. You've got to believe the promises of God every single day. It's not enough to just, I've got to do it today. That's what I was committed to. Now I'm done. Thanks, God, I got what I wanted. Now I'm out of that situation. Now I'm out of that circumstance. God won't let you use him as a means to an end. He won't. He will not let you use him. He is the end. He is the goal. He is the treasure. This is why the psalmist writes, Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. We end with this. David rightly confesses that there is a time for this beginning, for the hope of the Lord to begin. And if this is, if you're not in a position where you're a mature believer, if you're not in a spot where you can say wholeheartedly that you are pursuing the Lord, if you're not pursuing him through daily prayer, daily reading, 
treasuring him, enjoying Jesus, if you're not orienting the entirety of your life around how he affects every area, every aspect of your life, if you still have plan B's and back doors and secondary plans, you can join in this exhortation from David. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. For some of us, today might be that day where it's like, okay, today is the day where I'm going to hope in the Lord from this time forth, where I'm going to abandon all plan B's, all extra things, all of the things that I really want, all of my secret desires and things I want to protect, I'm done. And I'm going to humble myself. I'm not going to think too highly of myself. I'm going to confess that the secret things belong to the Lord. I'm going to confess that my job in the body of Christ is 100% about enjoying Jesus and that manifests through serving others in the body of Christ. Today might be the day that you just got to decide, like, let's do this. For some of us, it might be like forevermore, like, we're going still. Let's do this. Let's keep on. But I will tell you this. You don't go on the journey alone. We're all here together. We're all here to dig in. We're all here to pursue Christ. And as Paul said, we've decided to know nothing among ourselves but Christ and Him crucified. So let's loop in Christ as the sovereign Lord of all things. Right? Jesus isn't an upgrade. It's not like, let me tell you my story. Also, here's like the ad 50 cents. Here's Jesus kind of cool thing. Jesus has to be central to every area, aspect, avenue of your life. He's the Lord of all. If you're doing stuff without Jesus, it's not worth doing. You're wasting your time. If he's not there instructing, ruling, reigning over those things that you're pursuing, just got to get rid of them. And just do the things that he's doing. You're always going to be successful in those things. If you join with what he's doing, 100% success every time. Because you, you, you're already on some, the train of something that's successful. The Lord's doing it. He cares about it. He wants to be a part of it. If he's not doing it, you're just going to be fighting it the whole time and trying to force him to be a part of it. He's not going to let you do that. You're just going to get frustrated hurt, and really wanting to operate in pridefulness and, and challenging him, like, God, why aren't you working? Why aren't you doing this? Like, I've been working so hard trying to do this, and he's been trying to tell you the whole time, like, it's because I'm not doing that. Like, you're working on something that we're not doing. You're, like, working on a project that's, like, unapproved. We're not doing that. You need to quit that and get on, start working on the things that we are working on. And you just find tremendous success, but also an ease, an ease in joining God in what he's already doing because he wants it to be successful. He's going to make it happen. 
all right, I'm just going to keep going. So, like, let's just pray and, like, we can do business because, like, I think, I think, you know, I think we need to do business. So whatever camp you're in, if you're in the from this time forth or the forevermore camp, let's, let's make some commitments here. Let's make some commitments so that when we can all walk out knowing that we're on board, we're going to serve, we're going to give with the ability that he gives, we're going to contribute to the body of Christ in a way that brings him glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your love. We ask now that you would call us, Lord, to repentance, that you would call us out of our arrogance and pride, that you would call us out of our desire um, and our tendency, really, to pursue things that you're not really a part of. And Lord, we don't want to keep coming to a place where we're asking you to be a part of things that we're already participating in. We, we want to rely on you and what you're doing, and we want to follow you in what you're doing. And so, Lord, work, work in our hearts now. Call us to change. To come under your lordship. Lord, we need your help. Work in us now by your Holy Spirit. We love you. Amen.